Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. The theme for Season 3 is better. Better everything, from AI to being fairer, big ideas to body language, if it's important to being a fairer person, business or planet, an expert and I talked about it. What follows is an edited recording, as Mouthwash is a live show created just for Twitter spaces, so the quality is more conference call than podcast sound booth. Sponsors are really important to me, so please take a moment to visit Ecology. They planted a tree in the TBD forest for every live listener we had. And if you want to offset your carbon footprint, you can do that easily. Just nip to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference and sign up. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com forward slash TBD conference. Also, I was honoured to partner with and test out Spaces Dashboard, the helpful tool that's making it super easy to find great audio on Twitter. Check them out on Twitter at Spaces Dashboard, all one word, and mount from Mouthwash for a surprise. Mouthwash is the audio show of TBD, the conference that people call TED without the bullshit. It's going hybrid March 31st, 2022. So get your tickets for the in-person event or the global live stream at universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Use the code Mouthwash. You'll even get 25% off every ticket you buy. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Sign up to the newsletter on my Twitter profile. That's Paul underscore underscore Armstrong. And you'll get informed about all future seasons of Mouthwash. Trust me, you'll want to hear what we have coming up. Finally, as with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season three of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like TED without the BS. It's a strange time around the world. Zoom fatigue to climate change, the great resignation to the metaverse. A lot seems scary, unfamiliar, and people are rethinking everything from core beliefs to the way they work. Um, A theme seems to be emerging, though, a desire to improve and make things better. Uh, That's including themselves. So that's the theme for season three. Better. Better everything from AI to PR, body language to open innovation. I'm speaking to massive brains and execs from Twitter to Walmart, Babylon, and making you and the world we live in hopefully a little better. Season three includes best-selling authors, security experts, speech coaches, and Silicon Valley startups who want to reverse your aging process. It's going to be a great season. Make sure you get the SMS reminders so you don't miss a minute of it. Right, let's get on with tonight's show. Today's brain is VMware's senior cybersecurity strategist, Karen Warstall. Welcome to the show, Karen. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, and I I am thrilled to be here. Excellent, excellent. Okay, before I chat more with Karen, let's talk a bit about where we are, how you can get involved. Uh, Twitter Space is still new to a lot of people, so let's explore it a bit. Um, we're all on the mobile app, but you can actually listen on the desktop as well. The top bit is where what we call the nest, and that's where I or any speaker can post tweets up, like the one you've seen up there already. Uh, Mouthwash uses this to discuss them in a section we call Desert Island Tweets, and we'll talk a bit more about that uh, later on the show. You can click through to follow accounts, links, very pretty, uh, pretty handy as well, and a unique sort of feature to Twitter Space that a lot of people are desperately trying to copy. Uh, You can have up to 12 speakers in Spaces Now, and the host, uh, you just simply request the mic at the bottom left. Mouthwash is a bit more of a show format, though, so we use the hashtag Mouthwash Show, and you can DM me uh, throughout the show, and I'll do my best to weave in your questions. Uh, If you want, click the three dots on the app, and you'll find captions and other accessibility features should you need those as well. Um, Okay, time to help me and the world um, find out about the space. And so very simple to do, just literally uh, either share the space by going to the up arrow and the staple at the bottom, or you can probably click, if I'm quick enough, uh, on one of the uh, tweets that I put up in the nest about that it's starting. Uh, And if you could do that, that would be amazing, not only because that makes you a very nice person, but also for every person we get into a space uh, this season, ecology will... uh, plant a tree in the TBD forest. Uh, we have over 10,000 trees there at the moment, and it'll go up uh, a lot more this season. Uh, ecology, super smart people. They're all about sustainable uh, uh planting of trees and lots of other things. They want to be uh, carbon, low carbon goal uh, and verified gold standard climate solutions by 2040. So they're doing lots of um, collective action. And if you want, head over to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference and you'll find out more. And that's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. 
We're also sponsored by Spaces Dashboard, a company that's helping good audio be found. Uh, They provide a new, fast and easy way to find all the latest, upcoming and also past uh, conversations on Twitter Spaces. Uh, It really does help you find good audio any time of the day, so definitely check them out. If you want to try it for yourself, head over to Twitter Spaces and you just find the Spaces Dashboard, all one word, and you'll get yourself an invite. Thanks to Nathwash. Uh, brilliant. Okay, look, on with the show. Time to shower Karen in a ginormous amount of emojis. So if you click the heart with a plus down the bottom, you should be able to do that now. I'm giving you all a wave. So there you go. Um, you'll be able to uh, see all of the emojis that you'll, you can pick. Okay, pick as many as you want. Literally shower uh, Karen in them while I read out the bio. Um, okay. Currently, senior cybersecurity strategist VMware, the cloud computing and virtualization company that is owned by Dell, Karen is no stranger to male-dominated industries. With over 30 years of information security experience, Karen knows what it takes to keep information secure and also how the big kids do it. Uh, She should do too, after her 10 years at Microsoft, AT&T Wireless, and Russell Investments as Chief Information Security Officer and other other, um, titles. Karen now runs her own business uh, company, um, I think called W Risk Group, which provides customized guidance to help companies develop their own information security programs and a lot more besides. Uh, don't think that Karen's a workaholic. Far, far from it. She's actually an advocate for mental health and sending the elevator back down. Um, she's a prolific author, uh, multiple boards of organizations, and Karen also created and runs the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech community, proving she's not done changing the industry yet. Karen, what did I miss out from your bio that people should know? Oh, my goodness. Thank you for all of that. Um, there's more more than people really want to hear, I'm sure, but that's uh, that covers it, I think. <laughs> okay. There's normally something I always miss out. Anyway, um, okay. We're going to be talking about securing your data, mental health, some other, other things. But let's start easy. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Oh, my gosh. Uh, it, it was, I, w- I hope the person who's got my 7 a.m. call does not cancel. That was my first, sorry, that was my first thought this morning. I had to get up pretty early for a phone call. Wow, 7 a.m. That's, that's, that's when I get up, not when I want to start work, that's for sure. Um, okay, how have the last 24 months been for you? Actually, um, li- living here in Colorado, I have to say I was pretty fortunate. The last 24 months have been an eye-opener. It's been very interesting to watch. I'm glad that I get uh, what I would call a front-row seat on something that's so historical as you know, this pandemic. Um, but but it's been a relatively easy ride for most of us in Colorado. I actually got COVID right at the very beginning of the pandemic before we knew that, you know, before we knew what it was. And um, and so I, I, I guess I went through it sort of feeling a little, um, you know, protected that I thought my antibodies would probably protect me from getting it again. But yeah, it's been... We get so much time outside. We get so much time here to, um, uh, you know, interact at least at distance with people as long as we're outdoors and um, and without masks even. So it's been it's been relatively easy compared to other states that I frequent, like Washington State, where it's been a lot a lot more impactful. I was going to say you're very lucky to have a lot of trees where you are, don't you? So very yeah, nice. um, <laughs> a lot of open space. Yep. Yeah, sure. exactly. I must admit it's been the same in London. I'd, I'd never lived in East London before the pandemic, and I moved. And um, people who say there are no trees in London, I was like, you need to go eat. There are lots of trees in London. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it does make a difference. It really does. And I I was reading up on the science behind forest bathing, so I 100 uh, percent attest to what you're talking oh. about as well. Yeah. Um, tell me a bit about younger Karen. What was she like, and um, how did you get into the nutty world of security? So my um, my uh, my nature is I'm 98% right brained. I am a creative. I like to do, um, you know, I like to build. I like to do art. I was in art and music as a child. I thought I would probably grow up and design ball gowns for Barbie dolls. Uh, seriously, and um, so I was not tech minded. Unlike my sister, who went on to Caltech and MIT and is truly a rocket scientist. I was kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. And my my foray into um, computer science and technology and security became was, was quite by accident because I found myself in a situation where I really needed a job. Um, I was um, not, uh, I had two small children. I was really broke. My brother came over and he said, you know, sister, you need to learn to code. And um, he gave me a TRS-80 Radio Shack Model 1 with a serial number of 6. And he helped me get started on 
um, learning how to do code. And I found out I was actually really good at it. And I liked it a lot. The creative aspects of coding for me were great. How I got into cybersecurity, I ended up applying to a local graduate school program in computer science. And my professor encrypted the final exam in one of my coding classes. And I was completely smitten at that point in time with security because um, if we had done our assignments throughout the semester, we'd have all the code-breaking tools we needed in order to take his, his dastardly <laughs> final exam. And um, I was the first one to turn it in with my partner, with my teammate. And so, yeah, after that, I was completely hooked on everything relating to cybersecurity. But this was quite a long time ago, and we didn't even call it cybersecurity then, right? It was, we had only two kinds of products in the market for cybersecurity tools. One of them was um, crypto gear, government furnished crypto gear. And the other one was RackApp and ACF2 for IBM mainframes. And so I got to watch the entire industry grow up. So, but it started from a place of not being really technical at all. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's how that went. I love that. I want to talk more about that when we come to the mental health section of it. But let's stick with security for a bit, since that's a big part of the day job. Um, what do you do specifically for VMware as cybersecurity strategist? I don't think a lot of people know what that job title entails. Sure. Um, I speak to companies all day long, every day, uh, about cybersecurity. Uh, there are so many issues confronting us right now and cybercrime since the pandemic just went on an explosive track and uh, you know people are naturally concerned about what to do about ransomware and what to do about cybercrime and and where do they start and so part of my job is to draw upon all of the experience I bring to the table from my multiple CISO roles and my engineering background in um, cybersecurity that I did at the Boeing company for many years and to um, talk with them at, for the things that they care about. You know, what do they want to see accomplished? What, how do they want to get there? And I can offer some perspectives from a, you know, from v VMware offers us as cybersecurity strategists to, uh, not just to our customers, but to um, the IT community at large to say, and the business community at large to say, this is really important for us to get done here are some steps you can take to do this. Here's things we can recommend. Here's how VMware does it and uh, kind of represent that. So we're a resource that VMware provides to the community. Do, do a lot of companies work in that sort of way or do they tend to sort of silo people or is that just a VMware special service? Um, I think a number of companies probably uh, do this. I, I had a similar role when I was at Microsoft when I was um, the chief information security officer there, I had the role, you know, part time of doing internal security for Microsoft's internal systems. But then I spent about 30% of my time talking to the public. So um, yeah, that it's just, it's a great way, I think, to do service to the community at large, when you have a, you know, cache of experts who have deep deep expertise in this topic to make them available to the world to to talk about this i think you know there's there's probably other companies out there that do it too um i just am you know familiar with vm what vmware is doing and the frequency with which we're doing it um pretty much surpasses anything i've done in my past roles so Cool, I'm with you. Okay, you mentioned the pandemic, that obviously uh, things have sort of increased and that sort of stuff. We're all online mm -hmm. a lot more now right. uh, and will increasingly be, thanks to how we're working moving forward. What uh, what are the main sort of changes that have happened? Um, are we seeing new areas of cybersecurity sort of that we didn't think were going to sort of change quickly because of the pandemic or is it just the same old stuff but just more? Yeah, it's not same old stuff. It has certainly um, accelerated and... Here's what I would say is that when we all got sent home to work and we all found ourselves, you know, uh, online so much more, um, we expanded the footprint of attack services around the world dramatically. And the cybercrime community was not at all blind to the opportunity that that presented for them. And so um, the, the net of it is right now today, Cybercrime is about a $1.5 trillion annual revenue. 
that makes it the, if it was a nation state, that makes it the 10th largest GDP in the world. Um, that number, according to the World Economic Forum, is going up to the, we, we anticipate $5 trillion uh, in a relatively near amount, near term amount of time. And that would make it one sixth of the entire world's GDP. That, that alone is concerning because what that means is you have a cybercrime, you have cybercrime cartels, you have cybercrime, na- you have nation states, rogue nation states that enable and abet cybercrime within their borders. And that is got a specific agenda and focus. And it's no longer really about um, cyber criminals breaking into your network to steal your stuff. That's kind of where, where our mind was two years ago. You know, they're breaking in, they're coming in to take my intellectual capital or take my personal data and leave. That is not the case anymore. What they're doing is using uh, a, a variety of techniques once they get in to stay in. And so essentially what has happened is this a cyber crime intrusion has kind of moved from what I would call home theft to home invasion. And the very concerning aspect of this is how difficult it is for us uh, generally to detect them and how easy it is for them to set up persistence and stay there. Is that the next big thing that um, businesses are going to have to deal with is basically the increase of working at home means we have unsecure terminals and things like that. Obviously, I've grown up with like key fobs that you had to keep near a machine that had random numbers on it. And that's the thing. Obviously, it's getting more sophisticated now. But people's broadband still, you know, could be BT or could be anything uh, in America and that sort of stuff. Are we are we sitting on a time bomb of problems for companies? Yeah, well, um, that yes, I would say that there is a growing that we can anticipate a, a bigger problem if we don't do something pretty um, drastic and immediate now. Um, that's one of my concerns. Um, the the uh, The situation really has um, turned into turned into one where yes, everyone went home, everyone is working. There's an attack surface that's much broader because. We have a variety of devices that people are using to do their work. Most individuals I talk to at a personal level are not particularly uh, aware or interested in making sure they do everything with their own devices to keep them up to date and keep them from being vulnerable to attack. We have still people, I mean, I have, I have probably 1500 passwords and, you know, I make sure that they're complex and different, but that's not the general trend. Most people make them quite easy to guess. Um, in fact, I ran a scan for a company many, uh, not that long ago, and uh, detected that I was able to crack um, 98% of the passwords within two minutes. So wow. that kind of a situation makes it it just the opportunity for crime is so huge. Now, you now companies have taken a lot of steps. They're not, it's not like they're not doing anything. Um, some of the upshot of it though, is that there is a technical debt. Companies have a technical debt. They had it before they went into the pandemic. That technical debt created a certain amount of insecurity. And then they had to pivot very quickly and implement a complex infrastructure of uh, ways for people to get their job done from remote locations. Some of those are more user-friendly than others. So the other aspect to this, which I find quite interesting, is uh, designing and building a user experience that is user-friendly while they're trying to work from home. Because if we don't do that, then what we know is that the end users will work around the security controls in order to get their job done. So we have uh, the need to not only provide kind of, um, I would say, government classified level security in a very connected way and create a great user experience. Those two things traditionally have not gone together. It's a tremendous opportunity for innovation and change when we're faced with this problem, but we're behind the curve and we were already you know, there's a growing technology and cybersecurity gap. So as we adopt new technology, often what happened was we'd wor- we'd implement the new technology and worry about the security gap that it created that we'd mop it up later. Well, 
what happened in the middle of that growing security gap was the pandemic. And the security gap grew exponentially in the meantime, since that uh, pandemic hit. And, and uh, it's a big job, right? Companies are really struggling right now. And I think we're seeing that with the rise 300% increase in cybercrime in the last year. So that's really, that's where we're at. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned there about learning and sort of patching stuff as you go and that sort of stuff. I, I want to I get inside your head of how you learn new stuff because I'm told that ransomware attacks, like you just said, are on the rise and that sort of thing, but we don't hear about all of them because companies don't want the publicity. They don't want to show that they've been hacked right. or paid and that sort of stuff. Even if that isn't the case, how do you keep up to date with things that go on in the cybersecurity world when it's so shrouded in secrecy? Oh, you know, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, here's what I love about it. The, there, we have always had a tremendous challenge with keeping up with innovations in cybercrime and innovations in, um, you know, technology that opened new uh, paths for cybercrime. That's always been a challenge. What I found when I was, you know, this really came home to me when I was at AT&T Wireless. We had to overhaul cybersecurity. Um, for a variety of reasons, we don't have time to go in here, but the, the approach that we took was not to go study all of the things that are going wrong in the environment. What we did was we said, what needs to be right? What needs, we know cybercrime's a problem. We know that security has got to be done. How do we design it for the future? How do we design the security going into this and knowing that we'll be able to deal with 98% of the problems that come our way and the other extra 2% we'll deal with, with, you know, threat hunting and all of the vulnerability management stuff that we needed to do and incident response. So we took a, a, I really believe we need to take an approach that says, build it right. We know what that is. We, it's not a mystery. Um, go out there and engineer it properly and put in place the things that help you detect what's new because we, uh, we're we seeing, I think, more like zero-day attacks. A zero-day is something that we've never seen before, right? So we can't really anticipate it. A zero-day can be something that's a total disruptive event in terms of um, uh, computer security and cybercrime. We've had many of them in the past. Um, but we've had more zero days in the first eight months of 2021 than we had in the whole five previous years combined. So what that means is you can't study the problem space and try to get ahead of it because it's changing too fast. What you can say is, I understand we have this problem space. It's here to stay. Uh, it has highly funded, well-equipped adversaries who are working against us, what do we have to do to build a, an infrastructure and set of processes and train our people to do the best we can and, you know, aim for like, you know, Pareto's principle, like an 80-20 rule, maybe. We know how to do that. We just don't have the technical, we just don't seem to have, we're, we have too much technical debt to just make that something to go do in an easy way. And I'm not sure that um, businesses who are very, you know, close to the margins right now might may have the the financial will to do what it takes to make that happen. So to to that end, if there's anyone listening or you know people on the podcast uh, that their business is in a technical debt, what's the best bit of advice you'd give them at the moment? Well, I would say uh, that there are start start with a cybersecurity process. Something like what is outlined in ISO 27000 and 27001 and all of the uh, standards associated with that. There's an international standard accepted everywhere. Most of the federal standards in the U.S. are mapped to 27001 in some way and use that framework as a security management system to help you um, move this forward now that you know that's that's the best way i know how to do that it has a very systematic process that um we've used over and over again in different companies and it's extraordinarily effective in improving the position it's not an urgent change it's a it's a sustainable 
and effective change. And I would start, I would start there. Well, everybody's up to their eyeballs and alligators, right? It's hard to remember your primary objective is to drain the swamp when that happens. But in this case, there is, yes, you have to respond to things that are urgent, but as we all know, the things that are the that may have the biggest impact are working on what's important. And that's what I would do with that is to focus on those standards that are written by people who know this stuff very, very well and will help us get there. Okay, I'm flipping that on its head. What if you're the person on the other end of it using these systems? How do you make yourself uh, less vulnerable to attacks uh, or, or better oh, when you're just yeah. getting online? Is it a v- yeah. VPN or is it something different? Uh, well, first of all, patch your machine, <laughs> upgrade your operating system, apply all the patches. Don't click. I mean, if this is an end user, don't go. Don't go out and and click on clickbait. Right? We all kind of got involved in browsing a lot. Well, I think well during the pandemic and everybody was on lockdown, and there is a tremendous opportunity for for um, rans- for malware and eventually ransomware to get into the system. Because look, if I was going to try to attract somebody, I don't create a scary site and say, um, this is a scary site, you know, this is going to be the, the, the hub of ransomware. So people won't click on that, right? If they're, if they're, unless they're really looking for trouble. But what they'll do is they'll say, Harry and Megan did this, you won't believe it. And click on that and download the ransomware that comes with it because it's a, you know, it's a site that's designed to get your attention and, and, and draw you in and get you to click. So there's a ton of clickbait out there and people just need to kind of like chill with the clickbait, patch the machine. It, that would go a long way and use multi-factor authentication. Don't, I, you know, don't use passwords. Don't use just passwords. Change to something that's much more robust than that, whether it's using an SMS to your phone or whether it's using a, you know, a special token or a dongle or something like that. You need to start migrating all of your logins to something that's multi-factor. That will go a long way, actually, to diminishing cybercrime. Because the, okay. the, number, one way to, the number one way to get in is through credentials, stolen credentials. And that's through clicking on some bit of rubbish that basically puts malware and then it could be a key, key, keystroke um, logger and that sort of thing? Could be, could be that. Or it, it, a lot of times it's a social engineering. So you'll see a lot of um, sites where they'll, uh, they'll, to make it look legitimate, they'll have a number of hops that they redirect you to that look like a very legitimate business transaction. Maybe you're doing, you're ordering something from that site that you think is interesting and they'll hop you around until they finally get to the final site where by now your, your, your guard is down and your trust level is higher and they ask you for information and that information helps them, uh, to gain access to, um, you know, your system. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Quick fire question. What's the best laptop to buy next? Would it be a PC or a Mac? Mac. When it comes to virus, <laughs> did I answer that fast enough? <laughs> I think you answered it. Did you say Mac? <laughs> yes, I did. Okay, fair enough. Okay, that's fine. Um, excellent. I've made good life choices. Right. Okay. No. Um, <laughs> let's let's flip it up a bit. We've gone technical. Now I want to go a bit more mental because you have a different. The reason why I thought you were so interesting as a guest is because you've become really interested in mental health. Uh, it's a bit of a departure for some cybersecurity, or am I missing the link? No, I mean, the cybersecurity, uh, last I checked uh, by the research that VMware did, 51% of cybersecurity professionals identify already, self-identify as burned out, and 65% of those are looking to leave the profession. Pretty serious. And so, yeah, my interest, my interest in it came by naturally from personal experience. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's in some ways, I know that I have tons of tons and tons of company. So this is a worthwhile place to be focusing our attention. Okay. Um, you created Mojo, uh, um, the online mm-hmm. membership slash training program that you cover things like empathy, um, inclusion, mm-hmm. uh, personal branding, negotiation, that sort of thing. Really chunky topics and that sort of stuff. Why are those covered in more places like universities or when people join companies? Why are people expected to be excellent without training to back it up? That's a fantastic question. I mean, the fact that empathy now is considered the number one leadership trait 
um, you don't get training in empathy anywhere, right? And um, so I don't quite know the answer to that. I think I think some of it is a little bit like air and water. People kind of feel like these are things that they should just kind of have naturally. And it's part of learning and part of growing up. But I think what we're learning is that when you're in the midst of the um, intensity at work, there isn't time for people to be thinking about these. They're focused on many other things. And it's a little bit like having a frog in a pot of cold water, right? When you turn the heat up, the frog will, will boil eventually because it won't jump out of the pot. And if you threw a pot into, if you threw a, a frog into a pot of hot water, it would, it would leap out right away. Um, our people are slowly and slowly becoming a, um, acclimated to levels of stress that are unsustainable and um, don't know how to get out of it. And there isn't any, uh, you know, they're just, there's, there's much more now than there was even two years ago. But these ideas about stress management, how to detect when you're under a, a you know, unsustainable level of stress, unmanaged stress, um, is, is not been something that we talked about. And I think part of it is we thought of being susceptible to stress as being weak. And people don't want to appear weak. So it's like, I'm not going to go look for help. I'm not going to tell other people that I'm struggling because A, they might think that I'm not qualified for the job and I need this job. And, and B, I don't want to admit that I can't do it on my own. So there's a certain amount of that involved. You talk um, about a flame-proof life. Can you tell us what that mm -hmm. is and how people should create one? Yeah, flame proof. To, flame proof is really, you know, that idea of being not of being resilient, of not. Of, uh, I used to use a phrase all the time at work about, uh, you know, when I'd walk into a very very tough meeting, and people would say, "Wow, how did you how did you stand the flames?" And I was like, "I have asbestos proof. I have asbestos underwear. Right? I'm just I'm flame proof. <laughs> like I'm just walk. I walk into the meeting knowing that that can't really hurt me." And, um, you know, it might, it might not be great of a, as an experience, but my resilience was at that point where I could say, look, I can deal with this, right? And I know how to shake it off afterwards. So Flame Proof was kind of born out of that idea that it, it's really meant to be, it's, it's not bulletproof. It's like, yeah, you know, we're going to be dealing with these kinds of very uh, intense experiences at work. Sometimes they're going to really go be personal how do you how do you have the perspective how do you have the tools to be able to turn that around and say i got it i understand that um here's where i can do better but this is not my problem or you know whatever that whatever that circumstance might be and then just um move on like survive for the not just survive but really thrive for the for what's to come next you know how do we stay in the game I definitely think that's so paramount at the moment. We did um, the first virtual TVD during the pandemic and the theme was resilience. And mm -hmm. um, everyone said it came at the right time. They felt that they were at that ledge and that sort of thing. So I was very sort of yeah. pleased to sort of do that. I actually found myself getting angrier faster at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, after a lot of uh, reading, self-reflection, I think it's safe to say the calls were coming from, quote unquote, inside the house. Um, I see a lot of people on TikTok exhibiting aggressive behavior towards bosses mm. and their jobs, which probably isn't productive or healthy, not only for the longevity of that job, but also themselves. Um, how can we manage? our anger more or, or are we asking the wrong question uh yeah i would say you know anger is a secondary emotion uh, anger is not a primary emotion anger doesn't come first something else comes first um it can be disappointment embarrassment shame uh exclusion rejection there's a whole list of other feelings and um and it's interesting of a list of feelings where you, I think there's somewhat something like 150 different words to express feelings in the English language. And typically people um, in our culture use about 10 of them and anger is a big one. <laughs> so we have to recognize that anger is contributed to by a bunch of other things. And when we can get back to the root of it and say, why am I feeling like this? What did this trigger in me? What is this? You know, I am feeling really, I'm angry right now, but what was I before I was anger, angry? I was 
embarrassed. I was ridiculed. I was rejected. I, whatever that might be. That's where the power is. So it's not so much about how to express our anger for, for the long, I mean, there's ways to kind of tell somebody, look, that really bothered me and I want to talk about it, right? You can, you can express anger in a constructive way, but the real power is in going back to what was it that generated the anger in the first place. And that's where the growth, I call it the growing edge. That's where the growing edge is. Do you think um, we've got another generation doomed to repeat our mistakes at work? Or you think um, the pandemic's given them a sort of like a nudge to say you don't want these to be your jobs in the lifetime and that? You know, one of the best parts about the work that I've done with women in the tech sector is to be able to, you know, engage as a boomer, um, you know, with the uh, with younger generations. And they have absolutely seen things, they see things differently, and they want to approach them differently. And the reason that the challenge I think in front of us is for those of us who have now, you know, are coming towards, you know, the tail end of our career, maybe 10 more years, um, God willing, that we, you know, we can not have, we have to resist the temptation of talking to someone who's new in their career saying that it doesn't work that way, dear, you, that you have to change how you're thinking about this. I'm finding it incredibly refreshing that they don't think like we do and and say, I think, you know, like Gen Z, we should be heard. We need to we need to not have to say or not have to pay the dues first to be able to have input. We should not have to deal with a workplace that is not inclusive. I should not have to listen to my boss tell me I have to be more assertive. I'm an introvert. Right. And so it could fundamentally change the way we do inclusion and think about inclusion um, throughout society. And what I love the most about that is, um, you know, when you're working in a tech industry that's fueled the way our tech industry has been, very a lot of it is by um, venture capital and things of that nature. The drive is for return on investment. The drive is for, you know, a very much of a headspace kind of a game where you're like how do we how do we win the strategy? How do we beat the competition? How do we you know how do we generate revenue? All of that kind of conversation, and all of that is good. But one of the things it didn't make room for is the heart conversation. The room that the, the conversation that comes from the heart that says, "I don't feel like I belong here. I don't I don't I don't have a voice because I'm an introvert and I can't possibly keep up with the people who are sucking all the air out of the room like the extroverts right and and so i think what's happening with this next generation is they're forcing us in a very good way to sit down and say you're right there's a way for this head and the heart to be together in this industry let's figure out how to make that work I really like that. I think they do have a really interesting way of going about things for a lot of a lot of stuff. And it's it's almost like not a devil may care attitude, but it's definitely I don't think I need to do that. You know, that's right. a weird thing. Why? Why is that the way it is? You know, so right. it's almost like we've gone through 10 years of being abused in order for them to have a good life, which is great. You know, let's, um, I'm happy to sort of have that sort of done. But um, I'm, I'm really interested to see how they go about it. The, like the, the interesting bits, you know, it's not just TikTok, but seeing, um, you know, people doing hacks on using Excel and that sort of stuff. It was like, my boss thinks this took me three and a half hours, but actually I did it in three seconds. It was, it's really interesting it's um how they're using technology and sort of changing how sort of stuff's done um but yeah. yeah um i like on your site that you call the places you've worked where you served um is this because of your chaplaincy can you talk a bit about that and whether you think that the mindset you've got of service not servitude in jobs is going to affect people moving forward you know, it's not as a result of my chaplaincy. It's a result of a, a group of people that I worked with in, in pretty intensely as I was growing my my personal business. Um, and I can really credit um, a man. His name's Pete Vargas. He um, he is the one who said, "Look, when you're when you're in business, your number one your number one question you need to ask yourself is what problem do you solve." The second question you have to ask is, who do you serve? 
And ever since I heard that, I mean, like a million light bulbs went off for me at that moment because we can struggle so much to figure out what it is that we do that makes a difference and where do we have an impact. Those two simple questions drill straight to the heart of that. And what I loved about it was it's not me-focused, it's we-focused. And I think that's been, um, you know, that is that is a path forward for business. Um, yes, we have to pay attention to bottom line and everything. But at the end of the day, everybody wants to have meaningful work. Everybody wants to know that what they're doing is making an impact. And I think, honestly, most of us, and deep in our heart, wants to know that what we're doing is leaving a legacy that impacts society in a positive way. And, Ooh. yeah. I like that. Um, I'm really enjoying the podcast. Um, you've had amazing guests from psychologists to strategists and a lot more in between. Um, I particularly like the interview you did with Vanessa Puegueros, um, yes. One Login's Chief Trust and Security Officer. Um, you both spoke about uh, women in tech and constantly having to justify their skills and knowledge. Um, it was really sobering listening to that as a guy. Obviously, I'm not in your industry, but just sort of hearing what she's gone through. Um, what can men and women do when they see this happening? What are some of the key indicators that it is happening? Yeah, Vanessa is amazing. Um, and uh, I'm so privileged to have had the time to work with her. She opened my eyes to a lot of things. And what, one of the things she talked about there on the podcast was, um, you know, about not being able to, uh, not yeah, literally not being heard. And if you're four foot 11 and you're, um, you know, not a white male, that just, compounds the the situation so we need to make room for people to be heard um, there was a fantastic um, project at intel that was done in the last four or five years where intel made a decision on the basis of something their ceo wanted which was that they were going to make sure that the internal of the company represented their customers that the diversity of their customer base had to be represented internally in their workforce. And their rationale for that was you cannot innovate and serve who somebody you're not, right? So I thought that was interesting, but here was the unintended learning that came from it. And that was when they strove to create an environment of inclusion where everyone was having a voice and, and you know, you, they were working extra hard to make sure that they learned to listen to individuals that were different from them. What they found out was everybody in the company, 50% of you know white men, also found that they were being heard for the first times in their career. So I like to say that the reason for doing this is really when you lift one, all rise. This and and what do you have to do to do that? A lot of it just has to be to check your own personal assumptions. We, we make judgments, internal judgments about situations. It's how our brain works frequently. And some of those, fa that's fast thinking. I call it fast thinking. And the fast thinking can be very much biased um, towards our past experience, our lived experience, but doesn't include room for the lived experience and the expression of another person. So we have the opportunity to really change that by trying not to always live in our fast thinking brain, but, you know, challenge yourself. It's like, wait, did I just make a judgment call there? And if so, was that the right thing to do? And if so, if not, then what do I need to do differently? How do I slow this down so that I can be thoughtful and um, with a goal of being inclusive? I like that. I think that's some good tips to hopefully avoid people getting frustrated and eventually burning out. But burnout still does happen. Let's talk about yes. burnout prevention. Sure. Um, something that seems to have hit or will hit a lot of people as we hurtle towards another year of big uncertainty thanks to the pandemic, um, anti-vaxxers, weird government stuff, uh, and supply chains. Um, Karen, how do you know when you are burnt out or do you need to be told in order to realise? Both. It's both. Um, so... There is a self-awareness, a self and I'll, um, I'll talk about how you can see that for yourself. I mean, you mentioned something earlier about just being more angry, having a shorter fuse. Um, so this, let's talk about what the World Health Organization says burnout's really made up of. It's made up of physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion. Um, it's made up of a sense of, uh, cyn of cynicism, of a sense that there is 
no good to be done here and a sense of inefficiency, right? So if I, I always used cynicism as my big red flag. When I was feeling cynical, and now I have to say security jokes, cybersecurity jokes, they're mostly cynical and they're actually very funny. So there's always room for that. But when it's the idea, the irrational thinking that starts to creep in that says, management doesn't give a rip. Nobody around here knows what they're doing. This place is, you know, uh, you know, going to the dogs, whatever that might be. That's cynical thinking. And that is a clear sign that you're getting on the path to burnout. The other thing I would say that is really a telling sign is when you start to feel like um, very detached from the things that normally would give you um, an energy and enthusiasm. The, there's a, an ancient word for this called acedia. It's uh, trans that was from the ancient desert fathers, and it's been translated now into in the another word which doesn't really fit a, as well called sloth. And it's one of the seven deadly sins. But the the reason it's one of the seven deadly sins is when a person who's experiencing this detachment from the things, detachment from the from the enjoyment of life, um, the, the I would say it is is it is as if the song of your soul has gone silent. That is when you know you're in trouble. Um, we can all deal with bouts of physical. Um, exhaustion. We can all deal with bouts of emotional exhaustion. We can all deal with an inefficient workplace in limited quantities. But when all of that stuff starts to accumulate and you don't see a way out of it, you're going to run into burnout. And um, and you need to just watch for those warning signs. Now, what you asked me about, do we need to be told? The other answer is yes, we sometimes need to be told. I needed to be told. Why? Because my work ethic and my internal, my work ethic is, has always been, you know, keep going. Um, you can work through this. You will get to the other side. You just have to motor through. You just have to push through. And I learned very early in my career to kind of disregard the signals that said, you need a rest, you need a break. And if somebody had come to me and just said, I think you need a break, the way I would hear that is to say, I need to work harder because obviously I'm not cutting it. Somebody thinks I need a break. They must think I'm not doing a good job. That is the danger of being told. But when you have a trusted group of people around you who know you well and know, you know, know that this is a particular um, problem and something that you might encounter, they have a way of saying, you know what, let's go for a walk. Let's talk for, let's talk for a minute. You know, I really care about you. And I call that hashtag be an ally right? That is when we have each other's back. We don't leave somebody on the field, but we need to, you know, if they're down and wounded, we don't want to leave them there. We need to tend to them. But how we do that is going to be, um, you know, something we need to pay attention to as well. Yes, I agree. Um, I think just we're coming to the end, but I just want to um, it's top, everyone loves a top tip. What is your top tip when it comes to people actually having a work-life balance? Yeah, great question. The top tip is this. Be, know what you want. Know what makes, what would keep the, soul, the song of your soul going. Know the thing that feeds your soul. And, and maybe it's more than one, Right but be really deliberate about setting goals that that for that thing that you care about whether it's spending time with your family or whether it's going on a great vacation in the future or whatever that might be and say i commit not only for my work to spend time and focus and presence on my work and get that job done in a in a excellent way but i have another set of goals that are not related to work that I care about deeply that matter to me spend time on those every week block the time out in the diary and get it done don't so at the end of the week you might have had an extraordinarily busy week but you also be able to look back and say wow I did this thing I moved the needle forward on this thing I really care about it it will give you purpose and meaning even in those moments when work is not going so well. 
that is a great bit of advice. Okay, uh, folks, it's time for Karen's Desert Island Tweet, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, you'll be able to see a tweet from, and I'm probably going to spell her name wrong, Brené Brown, Breen Brown? Right, Brené Brown. Brené right. Brown, excellent. Um, and it reads, so many of us have been handed down or unknowingly allowed or unknowingly created a long, long list of worthiness prerequisites, a list of I'll be worthy whens. But here's the truth of the matter. We are worthy of love and belonging now, right this minute, as is. Why did you pick this one, Karen? Brene Brown, um, when I was in my chaplaincy training, I had a long commute between um, Tacoma, Washington, and Portland, Oregon, where I was serving at the VA. And I listened to books. And I listened to Brene Brown's book on the power of vulnerability, I'm guessing, uh, four times. <laughs> It was such a game changer for me. And what it, she really gets to is how to live wholeheartedly and how to live in belonging. And that tweet, when she, she tweeted that, I was like, yes, this is, the, this is the essence of the message. We have a very diverse society. We have a diverse workforce. We have um, you know, diverse communities. How do we create that sense of belonging for everyone? Everyone deserves a sense of belonging, and that's why I chose that. Amazing. Um, I think a poignant place to leave the conversation on for tonight. Uh, thank you for being a part of Mouthwash, Karen. Any final thoughts or advice for listeners when it comes to being better, whether it's security or mental health? Well, I would say that we always have room for better, but never assume that you're not enough. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, I've got another amazing cohort of people this season on Mouthwash from big tech to entrepreneurs, designers, speechwriters, best-selling authors, big tech, Silicon Valley startups to healthcare specialists. Uh, if it's important to being a better person, business or planet, we are talking about it. Um, up next is Francesca Spector, author of Alonement, and we're talking about being better alone. Quality time, self-care, solo travel, and a lot more besides. She's got an amazing book that's just come out, and I am going to be grilling her on it. Um, sign up for the SMS alerts, and you'll never miss a minute of mouthwash. Just go over to mouthwash.norby.live and pop in your mobile.cell or mouthwashshow.com, and you'll find everything about mouthwash you could ever care about. Um, once again, my thanks to the superb Karen uh, Warsall. Follow her on Twitter, Karen Warsall, or one word, and her website, karenwarsall.com. Um, please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for Karen as the lo-fi music plays us out. Uh, thank you for joining. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every one of you. And thanks to Spaces Dashboard for helping good audio be found. I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter Spaces. Mm -hmm.